Welcome to uh, the panel. Thanks for being at the conference and for coming to this session. My name's Lewis Bronze, and I guess they've asked me to chair this session because I've been in the world of broadcast TV and for the last 19 years in educational digital media with um, my company called Espresso Education, which has now successfully merged with Discovery. Um, now, the point of this session is that we want you, developers, producers, to get a clear idea from our panellists who they are, what their commissioning models are, and to, to put it um, crudely, how you can get your, the, your hands on their money. So we want it to be a very practical session. Um, we're not going to be looking at who the disruptors are in 10 years' time. We're going to be thinking about how we can develop our businesses over the next six months, 12 months, 18 months, etc. Um, now, we have a really exciting, great panel that do span the world of commissioning in uh, an investment in, uh, in our marketplace. And I'm going to introduce them on my far left, on your right. I'm delighted to welcome Lisa Percy. Lisa is the executive editor of Bite Size um, at BBC Learning, um, a former primary school teacher. Lisa has an extremely impressive CV, uh, originating educational content in both the public and the private sector for a number of organisations. And Bite Size, if you didn't know, now aggregates many of the BBC's formal and informal learning assets. It's a tough day for the BBC, if you've seen the news, and let's just state that I believe all of us in this room and in this industry have a huge vested interest in supporting the BBC as they move into charter renewal. Um, and uh, it's, it's great that we can welcome Lisa because she does represent the largest commissioner of digital and video content for the UK educational marketplace. And she may even have some good news to share with us uh, a bit later on, who knows. Uh, Richard Taylor, I would consider Richard uh, an industry veteran um, as I worked with him on a project about 12 years ago, in those days Richard was at the heart of the DFE, uh, and I guess he was realising then how impotent a government can be. It's one thing to make policy, it's another thing to get teachers to pay any attention. Um, these days, as media tailor, Richard has a portfolio life. He's very much hands-on through his successful involvement as an advisor and indeed an investor in a great many exciting edtech startups. Abby Arya is, uh, comes from a, um, a world so interesting and mysterious to many of us. He, he too is an investor. His new group, Sandbox, are brand, uh, only six months old, um, focused on active investment, and its founders combine many years of experience uh, in the edtech sector. Abby himself has operational experience from Pearson, the largest educational company in the world. So he brings a lot of very relevant and direct knowledge to our panel. And finally, on my right, delighted to welcome Ian Dodgen. Um, Ian wins the prize for the best job title on the panel. He is the Creative Partnerships Manager for the Broadcast Games and Film Division of the Wellcome Trust, the Wellcome Trust Public Engagement Team. I've got that right. Uh, I wonder how well known the Wellcome Trust is uh, in this room. They're an extremely well-funded institution with many great objectives in the fields of public health, medical research, and crucially for our interests, the engagement of the public in, me in medicine and science. And Ian will tell us a lot more about that, uh, especially the, the part that gaming plays in the work of the Wellcome Trust, which I think we're going to find fascinating. So I'm going to start by asking the panel to um, go through some presentations, spend a few minutes describing what they do, and uh, Crucially, I'm going to ask them to focus on what do they mean by learning and how do you, 
the producers and the developers get their hands on their commissioning or investment funds. So we hear a lot about, so I was in a presentation this morning, we were told the size of the global education market was several trillion dollars. I just want to put that in context. My company sells things to schools, that's all we do. That's the curriculum digital uh, content spend for all British schools. And um, we're looking at a figure of round about 75 million pounds annually for all primary, all secondary, all independent state and state schools in the United Kingdom and Northern Ireland. So that's just putting in context the size, you know, what the size of that number is, which is the one I should press right. Yeah. Compare that with books. Books is now, is still at 300 plus, is it 300 plus million uh, pounds. So the book market is still very much bigger than the uh, digital content market. The book market, interestingly, going down a little bit. EdTech is going up. But here's a very interesting slide from some research we did in our company just last month. Um, question asked to 600 heads of departments in, of maths and science in secondary schools. Bearing in mind, heads of department are going to be in their 40 to 60 years old. How open is your department to adopting an all-digital resource solution for core teaching and learning? So throwing away the textbook and alongside the textbook or instead of the textbook, having a wholly digital solution. And you can see that in science and in maths, there are 70% or plus heads of department are not ready to do that. So in all the excitement around ed tech, which is truly exciting, if you're selling to schools, these are the guys that actually have the budget. And and they aren't quite ready yet uh, for just to just to put a little bit of you know reality around around the session. Okay, now, Lisa. Thank you. So hello, yes, as Lewis said, I'm um, I'm Lisa Percy. I'm executive editor for BBC Learning. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about our department, how we work um, within the BBC. Um, we have in BBC Learning, um, kind of in recognition of the ways in which um, our audience consumption is changing, how our audience is changing, um, we've recently realigned our strategy in the department around three pillars, if you will. So I'll explain to you what they are and, and how we work, and this should give you an indication of, of where some of our opportunities lie. So to have a more impactful um, approach across, with learning across the BBC, We've organised ourselves in, the, in this way. So our first pillar is um, based around educational campaigns and annual themes. And these are things like Make It Digital campaign, which you may be aware of happening this year, um, looking at uh, digital creativity and engagement for a wide ranging audience. Um, Dish Up, which is around nutrition, eating, cooking, uh, basic cooking skills, again aimed at, at quite a broad audience and has, um, has broadcasting on TV, you may have seen some trails around it, also an online presence as well. And things like Ten Pieces, which is a, a classical music campaign aimed um, last year at primary school kids and then uh, moving into to secondary schools this autumn. So that's kind of an example of, of how we work in the campaign space. For what we call informal learning audiences, so uh, perhaps more mainstream audiences, and aligned to our factual uh, genre programming, we, have, um, we run an online offer called I Wonder, and hopefully many of you will, will have seen that. 
this um, uh, is based around uh, what we call a guide format and a timeline format online and explores, um, uses talent-led pieces to explore kind of questions that might intrigue and engage an audience who are kind of softly engaging with learning. So that's kind of our, our second pillar. And the third one there is, is Bite Size, um, which Lewis mentioned in the introduction, and that's the area I have responsibility for. And that's the BBC's formal learning brand uh, for, for children uh, in school. And it's curriculum focused um, and, uh, uh, and student facing. Um, so this currently uh, has several sort of strands of content that that fall into it. There are the, there's the kind of the revision content, which um, supports GCSE students as they approach their exams. There's content for children at primary school and lower secondary school, which is all curriculum focused and again is, is supporting study. And then also on there, there's um, the, a, a database of clip material, which some of you may be aware of, may have produced content for in the past, which is, uh, which is standalone, short, video um, and it's aimed at bringing the curriculum to life but again all very much curriculum focused so that's the area that I commission into um, and there's some examples of kind of the the wide-ranging stuff that we do across the age ranges uh, in bite size it's worth saying that of course we commission uh, a range of different content it's not just video although video is a large part of what we do um, and that can be uh, live action or animation. There's also interactive commissioning. We make online activities um, and we also uh, represent school radio as well. So there's audio content there too, again, to support the curriculum and kids and teachers in school. So today, actually, I do have a bit of good news as Lewis kind of trailed for me. Um, we have got some new briefs going live. These are video briefs and um, you can see them all listed there against various subject areas across the curriculum. They're all live on the BBC's commissioning site. That's where we publish um, all of our bite-sized commission, uh, commissioning projects. So do take a look if you are interested in producing some video for us. Um, it's worth saying again that what we're looking for is, is very much, due to a, a, that change in consumption that I alluded to earlier, very much short standalone films, very curriculum focused. Um, so have a look if, that, if that's something that might float your boat. Um, and I can talk a little bit more about that change in consumption later if, if that's interesting. But um, hopefully that gives you a flavour of, of what we do in BBC Learning and how we work. Thank you, Lisa. Um, I'm now going to pass all the way over to the other side of the table to Ian uh, and ask him to talk about his work at the Welcome Trust. So in terms of sort of relevance to, um, to everybody here, it probably helps just to put a bit of context sort of where I sit within the Welcome Trust and the Welcome Trust at large sort of because there's lots of touch points I think for everybody here. For those of you who don't know, the Welcome Trust, we're a global charitable foundation. We primarily support biomedical research and um, research in the medical humanities as well, but to the tune of something like £750 million a year. Um, but about 3% of the money we give away goes to projects which engage the public with science and health and um, the role of science and health in our lives, both um, in contemporary society and culture and historically. 
Um, that includes, for example, the Welcome Collection, which is a public exhibition space in London. It includes the work we do in the arts. It includes the work of the education team. And it includes the work um, of the team that I manage, which is um, the Broadcast Games and Film team working with the entertainment sector, generating entertainment. But the projects we fund across, we, we, so we work across informal and formal learning, and the projects we fund in those areas can can be supported by any of the teams, like whether it's in the education sector, in the education team or in the arts team or the national programmes team. We support um, the National Science Learning Centre for the continual professional development of teachers. We support workshops at schools, citizen science projects and films that are more directed at schools. And there's um, I'm a Scientist, which is an online project. Um, and to get a sense of the things that would fall into my bracket, there's, uh, that's us. So this was, I mean, you may or may not be aware of Okido. It's been sort of featured here a couple of times. We, we came on board in, um, many years ago um, to help support it as an arts and science magazine back when it was sort of starting up. Um, now it's um, moved into, it's been commissioned to, um, for a CBeebies um, animation. Um, uh, we supported and this project, um, uh, Mr. Alzheimer's and Me, which was for the My Life Strand on CBBC. Um, so documentaries, Ginger Snap, which is um, an app which is um, it's out now, but is um, it's essentially helping grandparents and grandchildren um, interact. And grandparents send their grandchildren adventures, um, uh, some of which are in sort of science and history. Um, and um, and then this is a program that is due to come out. So this is the um, the horrible science series that CITV um, have commissioned. So our interest is are, are quite broad. And and the truth is, in terms of how we can fund people, I know we're going to talk a bit more about that later on. Um, it's easiest if you've got a project that you just basically come and talk to us, and then we can work out where it sits rather than you trying to work out who to talk to. Um, I think that's sort of uh, my, my quick five minutes. Thank you very much Ian, now I'm going to pass to Abby okay. to talk about, uh, oh there he is, talk about Sandbox. Sure, so uh, we're just six months old, uh, but before before uh, starting Sandbox, uh, me and my co-founders, all of us were used to work at Pearson, uh, which is a very formal education company, and we always believed that there's an informal play out there. Uh, so we started Sandbox uh, with the uh, whole idea of uh, investing in companies that are at the convergence of media meets learning. Um, and that's where we pretty much play. So we invest in companies that are doing something in informal learning, formal learning, gaming, uh, but to do with learning outcome. Uh, all the way from, uh, from early ages to, to lifelong learning, uh, we go across. Uh, Obviously, the background of that, we always felt that media and learning is converging, and uh, I'm not going to talk through the slide, but essentially, I mean, uh, we all know it is happening, and uh, it is for real. Uh, the question is, I mean, what we, we essentially do is we look at investments where we find opportunities uh, that are scalable, that can be taken international. I mean, uh, Louise gave a great example of the size of UK market. We look more at is the is the idea scalable to Asia or to America, um, and uh, and basically can be supported, because we uh, although our investors now, but we are operators at heart. Uh, we come from a very operating background ourselves, and so whenever we look at a business, we say, is that can that be scaled? 
And uh, typically what we do is we look at investments that range from, and I'm gonna show you some. Uh, so basically range from uh, kind of, you know, uh, investment which are either reaching a certain number of audience or have reached a certain revenue scale. Uh, so very early stage is something we typically avoid, typically, uh, there's never a no. Uh, but basically where we come in is more when you already have something created which is reaching out to uh, beyond a pilot stage, you're reaching out to a few thousand audience and now you're really looking to the next level of investment and, and scale. Uh, may it be across gaming like Pop Tropica, which uh, reaches multi-million kids across the world or family education which is a family portal uh, mostly consumed by moms and dads uh, to think about everything from pregnancy all the way to teenage uh, and uh, our UK investment Hopster which is uh, again a classic example of media meets learning uh, so we are very active in uh, the, this space uh, that's me thank you very much Abby and finally to Richard uh, luckily I don't even need this slide thing because um, I'm the bottom of the pyramid and when you're at the bottom of the pyramid you don't do slides because that's actually too much work. So I won't bore you with my slides. Um, what I do is very different. I, you hear a lot about angel investors, well don't look at me, I'm not one of those. I'm a conception investor, a term my wife frequently tells me I should never use. Uh, and I'm basically there when the sperm meets the egg and nine months later something comes along but I've already invested. and. I got into education completely by accident. I used to be a farmer and all sorts of other things, so I don't know anything about learning and don't have kids, and so I'm the sort of cuckoo in the nest. Uh, but I'm sometimes the first point of call. So it's quite different. I think when you look at investment, you, you have to look at it in a sort of biological timeline. I'm literally the conception investor. Angel investors probably come along in the equivalent, the biological equivalent of a child. Uh, some other funds come along in the, the, they invest in the equivalent of a very smart, talented teenage Wayne Rooney, uh, or some of them actually come along and invest in, in the older David Beckham and then take him to America and do something very exciting with him there. But I'm at that really super early stage. And the sort of money that I give people ranges probably from five grand, which helped Night Zookeeper start up. I think probably the biggest I've put in individually is about 50 grand. Uh, and those little bits are far more likely from me and it's not that it's enough to get your business going or get your, your, your product made. What I often give people, it's proof of life. Uh, it's that someone's actually going to give you money that they know that you might completely disappear with or lose. And the bigger the amounts of money people give you, the more due diligence they put you through, but frankly you can still piss off with the money and, and go down the pub with it if you liked. Now what do I look for? I mean I, I look for a good idea, a good team. And something that, that hasn't been talked much about here, I look for a good culture. Because I think in ed tech and in, in the educational media area, culture is something that we don't think about and it's what screws up most startups more than money or well, less so than distribution. But it's a really important issue. And I decided that this was an important issue after talking to a mate of mine who used to coach the Australian rugby team, who said, gee, you know, ed tech startups sound like elite sports teams. Lots of young people, incredibly talented, lots of money, and it goes wrong most of the time. And actually he said his view was that a successful elite sports team has all of those same elements, but it's the culture that makes you really successful. So that's what I do. I've been doing it for quite a long time. Now I met Lewis uh, when I was at the DFE or TFES as it was then. 
uh, working as, I think, Deputy Director at the time of the Business uh, Development Unit, where we actually reached out and, and worked with private sector organisations. And it was an experimental program run by Edcom. So I'm rushing back to London to their 20th anniversary party tonight because I sold them my original Australian company where we did marketing programs for tampons and things like that in schools and telling kids why oil spills were naturally occurring. Basically, the worse the industry, the better they paid, and I quite liked that. So I'm not an educator. Um, and initially, I didn't really, if I'm honest, give a shit whether any of the stuff that, that I invested in actually worked educationally. But actually, when I looked back, I had to change my mind significantly a couple of years ago when I realised that if there wasn't an educator in the founding team and it wasn't trying to solve a substantive education problem, which isn't reforming timetabling at recess or some ridiculous thing like that, it actually never worked. So the thing I look for now is a small team, a good idea, they're going to be quick, and sometimes they've got a view that their business isn't actually going to be here for that long. Most people think that you're going to get business, you're going to grow and become a multi-trillion dollar company and sell yourself to Amazon or Google. Probably my most successful edtech business ever was about 20 years ago in Australia. We had a little maths tutoring program when the internet was first starting up. I got Craft to sponsor it. They gave us 300 grand a year in cash and a million co-op marketing. We had no overheads, no employees. We made quarter of a million dollars profit a year. And after four years, Craft stopped doing it because they stopped marketing to kids. And we just closed the company down. And that was, a, that was a great business, but we still closed it down because it wasn't any point in trying to do it anymore. So when you look at what people like me want and people like Dan, or, or sorry, everyone across this table has a different sort of view. We're part of a continuum. I'm right at the sort of bottom of the ecosystem. I'm the, the little sort of ant running around the table underneath. So if you want a million pounds, I'm, I'm the wrong guy to talk to. But if you want some super high-risk capital, and, you, and, and you're not going to go down the pub and spend it, you might want to come and talk to me. That's it. There's no slides. Thank you, Richard. Um, that's a really frank and a amusing description of what you do and, and, and a lot of very practical advice. So I'm going to lead a little discussion here on the panel, but I'm going to come to the audience quite soon for, for questions. Uh, so do be ready with your question and we'll take them in just a minute. But given that you've given us some, some, some very practical uh, thoughts about what attracts you uh, to a company, um, perhaps I can extend that question out to the other panellists and perhaps start with you, Lisa, and say, well, in, in your world, which isn't giving five grand to people, not your own money at least, uh, uh, perhaps you could tell us what attracts you, what, what does someone need to do if they haven't done a commission before for BBC Learning, what would make them rise to the top of the pile and get your, excite your interest? Well, I think we're, we're always looking for really creative responses to, to the challenge of supporting teachers and learners, particularly in, within the confines of, of the curriculum. So um, obviously everything that, that we do in Bite Size is curriculum focused, and that is paramount for us. And we know that, that students come to our site because they have a particular need. We want to be able to meet that need. We want to be able to meet that need with really creative, high quality content. So that is the essence of, of, of what I'm looking for. Um, and uh, it, it's just about how we can uh, kind of move that, move forward with that challenge, looking for ever inventive uh, responses, ways of engaging our audience as they evolve, making sure we keep a pace with all of that really. So and are you looking for people to come 
and expect you to fully fund them? Or will you expect people to come with some co-production money already up their sleeves? Well, we're kind of open to both. I mean, predominantly um, in, in my area of the business, um, I'm commissioning content and, and fully funding it. Um, so again, that's usually in, in response to briefs that we put out. I will occasionally look at on-spec ideas. I have to say um, they have to be particularly pertinent and, and get us at the right time if, if we're going to move them forward. But that said, you never know. Um, so I do look at those kinds of ideas. And we are open as a department to, to kind of co-pro discussions as well. Thank you. And turning to you, Ian, you, you painted a really interesting picture of an organisation that's got a lot of freedom as to where it decides to put its uh, investments. What, what can I ask the same question to you? What, what, what really turns you on? Yes, yeah, so, so as a sort of a starting point, in, in terms of eligibility criteria across the board, obviously things that projects that come to us need to fit within our remit broadly, i.e. sort of engaging with science or humanities related to health and so on and so forth. But that doesn't necessarily mean it has to be a, a sort of a, a science project. It can be, that can be an element within a, 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 a sort of a, a bigger project. But also we look for sort of collaborations, like everyone has to be working, collaborating with a researcher, stroke expert in a field. But those are sort of like basics, you, you, the eligibility. In terms of really what we're looking for, I mean, we are in an incredibly privileged position in that we can take risks. And so I know you said at the start, like, we're not talking about disruptors in 12 months' time, but actually many of the projects I'm interested in is looking not at where we are now or where we're going to be in 12 months' time, but actually where, where the world's headed. And in terms of development, funding projects are extraordinarily high risk because if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But actually, you can sort of proof of concept and then, and then attract funding from elsewhere. That doesn't mean we, we will still be interested in other projects that are sort of relevant now and have production funding. And that's across sort of schools projects and um, sort of entertainment projects. And we look for things that feel, I mean, like everyone else, like feel distinctive. They need to be fresh. They need to be adding something to the sort of ecosystem. It is, we, we live in a world now um, where sort of participatory entertainment is, is king. Like that is what we're competing with. And so it doesn't matter whether you're talking about even sort of, you know, in, in terms of entertainment or, or sort of more formal um, learning, you need to compete with that and, and you need to be smart. You need to, if you are looking, if you're coming to us with a, an education project, you need to be working with people who know about the curricula um, and think about how that's going to engage the audience, the school children and indeed the teachers themselves and the schools with those projects. And can you give an example? Do people have to, to answer a brief or can they just write to you on spec? Do they have to, how do they actually approach you? Yeah. And can I ask you, what's a typical size of an investment for a games developer? Yes, yeah, so, so, I mean, the bulk of our work is not by brief. We, they are, we don't have an agenda in, for, the, for the most of the things that we fund. And most of the things we fund, we fund as grants. So we're not, I mean, we're not looking they're not investments to us you know we get we have our sort of investments it's a completely separate entity mm -hmm. um these are just about sort of engaging people with these sort of subject areas and as we believe that science is part of you know it shapes our lives and every you know and everything we do um so uh i can't even remember what you actually asked now how <laughs> yeah, oh yeah how much how much so um it, it depends on the particular scheme so in terms of entertainment um we have like development pot of up to ten thousand pounds um and then and then co-production funds as they're called um of up to forty thousand and then up to three hundred thousand for sort of national programs which can also fund 
films, but that are more not the prime purpose is not entertainment, but they have another purpose, including sort of um, uh, more formal learning. Um, then those pots start around forty thousand pounds. Thank you. Thanks for being very frank. Now, Abby, you, you've got a brand new. In, in, uh, in, uh, in the incubator, if you like, or no, not an incubator. You're More you're you're, buy, you're you're going for companies that are pre-revenue, profitable. Where, where where's the right? Where's the sweet spot for you? I think we are we are going after post-revenue. I mean, at least the revenue is there. There's a certain. I mean, revenue or consumers. You can argue uh, depending on the model uh, right. the business has. I mean, uh, it's 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 a tough game nowadays. Uh, but what we are looking for is a product which is validated enough, uh, and. Uh, and I think when we look at any project, we look at pretty much three things. I mean, the first and foremost thing is, and, and this is research, uh, which, which suggests that, you know, if you look at the learning outcome, the biggest impact of learning outcome is first, the quality of teaching, and second, basically the time on task. Mm -hmm. And we believe that time on task can be increased if the content is engaging. And so obviously, unless the content is engaging, I mean, student will, will lose focus. And that's pretty much happens with textbook. While uh, I was growing up, I mean, textbook, I would be, I and my brother, we would be playing crossword at the end of the textbook mm -hmm. rather than focusing on the textbook because it's not engaging enough. It was boring. Uh, and basically, we invest in products that are first and foremost engaging. Second, I think as the world is changing, we are very much looking at investments which are more active. So using iPad, using, I mean, where engagement is more than passive. Someone just watching a uh, a program. I mean, it has to be slightly more engaging. And then lastly, I mean, I think the most important for ourselves internalizing it is can we add value to it? Uh, if we can take that product international, can we help them improve the product? Can we anyway add value? And if those three criteria meet, then we start talking further. Otherwise, we close the discussion and then probably reopen it after a few. So you, you expect to be operationally involved in, in, in the development of a company? Uh, we don't, uh, we are not hands-on involved at times, but yes, we should be able to at least uh, steer the, the strategy uh, enough. And to, having put the other two on the spot, what's a typical, is there a typical investment size that you'll make in, into a company? Uh, at least a couple of million to start hmm. with, at least. Uh, okay. Thank you very much. Now, um, I'm going to just ask the audience um, for some questions. So uh, would you like to raise your hand? And I'm sure we've got some microphones. And we have a question over here. Thank you very much, sir. Hi, uh, this is a question for Abby. Um, do you, when you invest in things, do you, can you, do you want to, do you need to t sort of invest in one single uh, entity, the whole sort of brand, or can you um, invest in a certain area of licensing of a brand? Uh, so, for example, would you in invest in the digital component of a TV brand? Um, as, as we said, we are new, so we would be absolutely happy to explore that. Uh, we haven't come across any such opportunity, but yes, absolutely. Okay. Thanks. Right. Thank you. Oh, here's a question over here. Thank you. Um, could the panel just clarify um, what the standard terms, not in terms of the detail, but what the ask is in return for the investment? Because obviously you have a different pool of people from a, from a public service broadcaster to VC to uh, grant uh, foundation. So it would be interesting to get clarity on that a little bit. 
Well, that's a great question, and I'll go down the line because I think you want to hear from all of them on that. So let's start with uh, let's start with Lisa. So, uh, in return for the money you put in, what rights do you expect to take away? Well, usually we would be asking um, with the briefs that have just gone out. For example, we're actually asking for all rights because that's um, uh, an online uh, broadcast kind of model. Um, there are some circumstances where we might look at uh, another kind of arrangement, but actually, increasingly, in my area particularly, uh, we're looking at we're looking at kind of buying out. So it's very much kind of a almost like a service where you're providing in that sense um, and providing the content just delivering to us. So it's quite it's quite straightforward. <laughs> we'll come back to that, shall okay. we? Okay. So Ian, could you answer that question as well? Yeah. I mean, so the grants are grants, and so we're we're not we're not looking to take anything from them. When um, we are funding a project that's going to be commercialised, then we do take um, a percentage of the back, but they're not investments for us. So we work to sort of keep that at a minimum. They're not, yeah, it's only to stay within charitable law. And Abby, when you... I mean, none actually, unless we are buying the company. I mean, so Pop Tropica, which is a company we recently bought, obviously we would buy everything. But if we are investing, just investing money, that's it. But you're doing more than investing money surely you, you must have some investor rights that you're looking for uh yeah that depends control? on the that no not control. <laughs> uh i mean basically it depends on the valuation of the company and how much we are putting obviously we get certain stake in the company uh we would love to get uh to a stage where we at least are able to steer the strategy so maybe a board seat or maybe some some shape or form of uh, way to basically steer that uh, strategy but pretty much yeah but from a rights perspective none unless we are buying it so apart from uh, people going down the pub and <laughs> what are you looking for uh, in I, I, terms I've of control got, i've got the simplest answer of all i want as much equity as possible you know i'm, I'm <laughs> this I'm, is I'm, an I'm, honest I'm, man excellent one of my favorite insults is someone called me the education profiteer and yet i'm in it to make money and I want as much equity as I can get, but also you, I'm, I'm pragmatic enough to know that if you invest when I invest and you take the biggest risk, you actually get the worst terms because when Sandbox come along, they can negotiate a much better package of rights and preferences and all sorts of things, and you'll grant it to them, which is the sort of, well, it's, it's the sort of stupidity of people you invest in because they want the early stage money because they don't have a business and then when they become successful they sort of forget that you gave them the money in the first place but you know that's that that's just sort of the deal i think one of the other things um, that's important is almost all the companies i talk to now all think they're worth too much money lots of them been through incubators and they're a million pounds is their minimum valuation well for a million quid i can buy four costa coffee franchises and actually be cash flow profitable next week rather than your ed tech idea which is probably going to lose me money for the next seven years so it's quite important that you don't overvalue what you're doing when you come to talk to people and frankly i think that there's quite a significant bubble in certain bits of education and technology and there's a whole lot of reasons for that so when I give you some money, I want to get equity, but I also realise you're going to have to bring in lots of other investors and that will get scaled down. And, and a lot of the time, what happens is that you jump into an incubator, maybe either before you come to see me or, or afterwards, and for 15 grand, they'll take 
And I sit there and just think, sorry, you gave, you know, 10% of your equity away for 15 grand. But then six months later, you think, you know, three months later, you come to the incubator, you think you're worth a million pounds. There's a crazy disconnect there. So the stuff, I'm, I'm much more pragmatic about it. And it's quite easy to achieve. You just got to sit down and talk to people. And you, you, there's no point in trying to bullshit them about why you're doing it. I, you know, I, I'm not doing it out of the goodness of my heart. I'm doing it because I want to have a grouse more. You know, that's, it, it, it's quite a simple <laughs> metric for me. I don't like working. I want to have more of a nap in the afternoon and take my dog for a walk and go shooting. And if you can do that for me, fantastic. That's what I'm interested in. Richard, do you think there are, do you think people are too quick to think I've got a good idea and uh, I will um, start a company and find Richard. Do you think do you think people should do more due diligence before they give up their day job and go well, off and start a company? They should do more due diligence about me because I normally know much more about them than they ever know about me. I think the problem is that, that most ideas I see are at best going to be a product, they're not a business. And so the big opportunity in the education area, whether it's tech or media, is buy and build, is aggregating a whole lot of these really interesting little things that are out there now. That's that's the real opportunity, I think. Okay. I have to say, I have to say just sort of slightly echoing um, what you're saying. W- one of the biggest problems, actually, that we face is that many of the people that come to us for funding don't have a business plan. Uh, there's sort of like there's an, uh, this idea and and sort of asking for support from it, but we want. Yeah, obviously we want to support great ideas, but we want to make sure that they're sustainable. Like, you know, it can be for, a, as it says, like it can be that it's only a project that's going to run for a year. But at least we go into that knowing that it's when people come to us with this sort of like a great idea, and we've no idea where it's headed. Like, is this is this for just the next? Is this the next year? If it's going to be for the next five years, how are you going to get the funding for the next five years? Are you expecting us to keep coming in every year? Like. I mean, having some sort of plan of some description um, is, is sort of, is, it's not just important, I mean, it's increasingly important, really, for us. So sustainability for the lifetime of the project, which may not all come from welcome. Yeah. Could be other sources. Yeah. Lisa, we realise that you're not responsible for deciding how the BBC collects IP and what, you know, what the rules are, but could you just defend that position about taking all rights? Because if I'm trying to grow a little production company... Um, Basically, I'm just working for next month's mortgage payment if you're taking all of my rights. Yeah, and I'm speaking very much about the bite-sized curriculum-related content at the moment, which is um, an online transmission model. Uh, We no longer uh, broadcast on the channels for, for that kind of content. So that's very much an answer that relates to that sort of content. As I did say, there are some other opportunities which uh, might be available uh, and involve BBC Learning, and I would suggest that uh, they that it might be useful to approach some of the channel commissioners around those kinds of ideas, and there may be avenues there that uh, would explore and that we'd, we'd have a slightly different rights position. Um, I would also say it's worth... Uh, as we're thinking, I mean, the, the way that I'm commissioning now is very much dictated by what we know um, our audiences need and the way that they consume the content. And that is around these kind of short online standalone films, and it makes sense for us to commission them in this, in this kind of way. Um, I would suggest that there are other avenues that you could explore, perhaps with kind of colleagues here on the panel offering different sorts of funding opportunities. And it's probably just about broadening out how we're thinking about education content. I'm interested in lots of different things, um, lots of different types of formats. These guys are 
even looking even more broadly than that at, at a range of possibilities. So I think it's just about thinking about all those different possible avenues for, for revenue, probably. Thank you. Thank you. So let's get some more questions, starting with lady over there, please. Hello. Hi. I'm Bethany from Technology Will Save Us. Um, I have a question, kind of, a, I guess, more of a statement question type of thing. Um, with so much exciting things happening in the UK around education and so much transformation happening around digital skills, the computer science curriculum changing, BBC focusing on digital, make it digital, the micro bit, I mean, the UK is this amazing place for kind of ed tech businesses to kind of thrive. And yet it seems like the US, um, there's more funding happening, there's scale happening faster. I know quite a few ed tech businesses that have gone there to get more substantial rounds of funding because they just couldn't find them in the UK or in the EU. Um, what's what's your perspective on how how you're helping to kind of navigate that, or your kind of um, I guess uh, suggestions for what you think will help to make the UK the hotbed that I think it can be for ed tech businesses to thrive and grow and become global businesses staying here rather than having to leave to find that? That's a great great question. Thank you very much. I'm going to turn to Abby, as you've just acquired an American company and you're bringing it to England, to or to Britain, I should say, to, to kick off on that one, please. Sure. Uh, hi, Bethany. Um, now, so basically, I think the DNA of investments right now, or the sort of the, the currency of the way business is done in UK is very different from the way business is done in US. I mean, and that's primary a uh, primary reason, or you can define it that way. I mean, it's U.S. is much more buoyant, but much more bullish about uh, the early stages or sort of the you know uh, entrepreneurship uh, compared to U.K., which we feel is slightly more conservative. Where we'll try to look at business plan in the nth level of detail. We want to know that this business is going to make money. Uh, we are more interested in when the return will come compared to U.S. counterparts who would look at how many consumers are you going to reach and value the business based on purely your consumer numbers uh, because they feel if you've got enough critical mass uh, basically if you and, and if you've you've touched the escape velocity you will be successful and there'll be a buyer out there and in fact if you look at the number of buyers in us for most of these businesses there are many more compared to uk so obviously it becomes a natural choice for most of them my view would be we need more investors actually uh, we need many more investors in EdTech or education. Uh, forget about EdTech. I mean, BBC and uh, Welcome are doing great jobs. But basically, they are, again, they're taking it internally for their own, I mean, you know, for internal consumption. We need more investors who come out and create education funds and start putting a lot more money behind this. I mean, uh, this is one of the areas which has been under-leveraged and under-monetized, actually, right now. Uh, what is required is more of us. So, coming to you, Richard, on that same question, um, and taking taking it on, or at least I think trying to answer the second part of that question is, can we get UK companies to break out? And Abby has said that we're a bit too conservative, we, we want to look at the business plan, we want to understand the market, but you're asking a question about, well, how do we make global companies? come out of the UK? And I think that's a, a really great question. What's your perspective? Look, I think there's really, there's, a, a, foreigner. there's a couple of simple answers because I'm one of those very reviled non-doms, which means I don't <laughs> not pay tax. It means I pay tax in Australia 
at the top 50% rate from the first dollar I earn. I pay tax here, but I can never get a pension or any benefits in either country. So actually, we should be sort of clapping for non-doms rather than you know, having Ed Miliband and his guys willing to take us and shoot us. Um, I think that there's an interesting thing, which is that I won't invest in any company that's not going to be, be international. I think tech, tech saves us, you know, is a great example. You could be a really great international company. But it also relates to part, partly to this idea of are we a sort of tech hotspot? I think probably not. I think because we focus too much on what happens in formal education, stuff that happens in schools, which frankly for me is not very interesting. Um, you know, why haven't schools changed much in the last 100 years? You know, you always see that ridiculous slide of a classroom 100 years ago and today. It's because education's 50% childcare as much as it is education. So the interesting stuff is in the alternative education ecosystem outside schools, which is sort of what you're doing. Frankly, I think coding is a load of crap. Kids don't really need to code. I want less coders rather than more. I want big data coding, so I'm not paying some guy 80 grand a year to write a whole lot of bad code that I have to get debugged. Um, and I, I, but, but what you guys are doing is perfect because it's about computational thinking and making things and understanding it in a 360-degree sense, and I think that's really interesting. You've got to look at... Say something like Moshi Monsters. Moshi Monsters actually is in a UK company, and I'm a shareholder in it because I sold them a company. Um, and they're based in Delaware. And they have a separate company there that holds the data, but they probably don't want me to say that. And the reality is that in some ways, doing some things in America is easier. I mean, I've just been a judge uh, with the EU or the EC, I never know which to say, for the Horizon 2020 program for their EdTech stuff. And frankly, I've never seen so many crap ideas in my life. You know. If you took out uh, one consultancy company and all the Greek companies in it, there would have been almost no, no one left in to give the money to. And so when I was reading these things, what astounded me was one of them said, part of what we're doing is stopping the um, cultural, you know, that America taking over Europe and, you know, will, will become an outpost. But I didn't see a good idea in any of the things that I judged or, or that I read, which is really quite shameful because we have great and talented people here. And it's not that there's a lack of money. There are people around who will invest. Yeah, some people here try and, try and sit on their hands for a bit too long. And American, Americans take more of a risk. But for a lot of people, maybe you should be looking in Asia. I mean, I'll give, I'll give you a good example. Lots of people think that the, you know, the BBC is hugely important in terms of commissioning media. But how many of you have thought about getting a commission from someone like Islamic Azid, Azid University? who've got, you know, they're, they're one of the biggest universities in the world. They've got 1.6 million students. They've got a campus here in England. They do lots of courses in English. I bet they've got a big requirement for really great content and would be a great partner. I think they're sitting on an endowment of $20 billion at the moment. You know, I sometimes think part of the problem here is your, your lack of imagination and the fact that you don't get out there and look enough about who might want to pay for this stuff or actually back your own ideas. Okay. Yeah. Okay, thank you, Richard. And does Welcome go global? I mean, welcome, welcome is global, and increasingly so. I'm not sure I can sort of directly answer your, answer your question, but for me, um, there's, there's sort of two particular sort of challenges that I think that, that are of interest. Um, one, one is that there are a lot of, and as you mentioned, sort of an increasing number of sort of platforms and types of media and sort of educational activities and projects and products and so on and so forth, all of which are sort of billed as being as helping learning and helping education and community schools, like none of which, by and large, we have any evidence for at all. So gaining a better understanding of what impacts different different forms of sort of 
product and sort of in their application and like how, what impact that has on learning. I think that's sort of quite an important sort of area that needs to be sort of built up. And then when we know, then that can be sort of used to create better products, which can which can definitely be um, promoted. And and the and there is the disconnect with what happens in schools. Like there's all this digital advance, but actually schools are somewhat behind in in applying in, in, in making use of those I mean we sort of we support the the National Science Learning Centre which helps sort of um, teachers learn how to use among other things sort of use modern technologies and sort of iPads and so on that beginning to be um, the uptake of that sort of increasing but that sort of that things are moving on at a heck of a pace and and while it's all very well and good as sort of generating all this fascinating content, but if no one knows how to use it in the classroom, then it's problematic. And at the end of the day, when they're taking their exams, those are pencil and paper or pen and paper. And sort of like, so you end up having sort of children learning in one media and then taking exams in another media. All of like, there's, there's all this disconnect and trying to join all this up is I think important in us moving forward. Thank you. Um, question. So this question is uh, directed to you, Ian. Um, you mentioned earlier about the Alzheimer's program um, you you funded on CBBC. I was just wondering if you could talk about that process. How does a TV production company like ourselves go down that route? Do we go to you first? Do we work together getting the commission? How does that work? Yeah, so, so it, it depends at what stage the project's at. I mean, by and large, I like to hear things really, really early because um, that way we can sort of work with you and sort of help. Um, so if you if it's sort of a nugget of idea, like you can come and talk to us and we can um, uh, discuss whether or not it is right for us or what it would have to look like for it to be right for us, and then you can decide whether or not you want it to be in that direction. I should stress, like for all the sort of the, the television and games and film projects, the sort of our involvement should always um, it should have an impact, but it should be it should make it more compelling, more immersive, more entertaining. Like as soon as it feels bolted on, if you come to us with a program idea and go like, we can have a bit of science here, like a L'Oreal moment, it's totally of no interest to us. Like that shouldn't we want to be? And it's not education by stealth. Like it's just entertainment. Sorry, what's a L'Oreal moment? Well, L'Oreal, you know, here's the science bit. Okay. Then there's adverts, but the right. the. Um, <laughs> um, so, so yeah, so come and talk, come and talk to us in the first instance. Um, if there's a project that you then, um, perhaps there's a, there's interest from a commissioner, then come and talk to us. Like we can discuss at what stage that's at. Whether you've got all the funding already, or I mean, sometimes people have all the funding, but actually there is benefit, like the the. the the use of our money is to fund something that just wouldn't normally be supported or could be supported by the budget given by the broadcaster, but it can add something to the programme that the broadcaster also sort of um, uh, would appreciate. So, um, yeah, at all stages, come and talk to us, but the earlier the better. Thanks, uh, Ian. So, I'm come to uh, so what, what, on one thing we've quickly all forgotten about today is crowdfunding. I mean, it can be a bit of a pain in the ass to get involved in it, but Gojimo, who I do some work with, have just raised over half a million pounds this week on Crowdcube. And I don't know of any other ed tech companies who've done that in the, in the UK, but they did it. In fact, they've hit 125% of their target. So maybe that's going to be an alternative to getting a commission. Why don't, you know, could you not do a crowdsourcing project? It's, it's, it's a possibility that I don't think lots of UK content producers have really looked at. So we're getting to the end, but we do have time for some more questions. And there's one over there. Um, so bite size, this is a question for Lisa. So bite size have quite traditional formats with their video content at the moment. Just thinking with like Michael Stevens' talk last night around Vsauce, would you be welcoming or interested in video formats that were perhaps 
different to, the, different to what you do now that are more risk-taking, um, more exploratory, more about kind of connecting with the audience that he talked about last night. I know teachers tend to be the, the driving uh, force behind using the clips, but it, would that be something that would appeal to you in terms of looking at new formats? Yeah, well, as, as you know, Liz, we are looking at... Um, at revamping um, the site, we're looking at how we can sort of keep keep a pace really with with technology. So um, we are looking at different types of formats. Um, we've uh, we've been piloting a couple of ideas, and we're looking at how we might might take those forward. And that indeed could lead to more opportunities for collaborations between different types of independent producers, interactive producers, and video producers. And we'll look at where that might go. But kind of. It's a little bit work in progress at the moment in terms of, of the site as a whole, but yeah, we're always looking at how we can innovate. So yeah, we're doing that. Thank you. We have a question here. Uh, yeah, it's just a question about where you see the biggest areas of opportunity and growth in terms of demographics. Um, is it preschool or um, you know a bit further up or yeah, eight to twelves? Tends to start at preschool and work its way up, doesn't it? Well, just just like you know, these were particularly digital products, I guess, and you know, where's what's kind of the the hottest area or the the least served area at the moment in, okay. in terms of edtech? Abby, do you have a view on that? Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, so right now, if you look, if you look at the current market, I mean, market data would suggest that preschool is the the most, I mean, you know, in demand, and pretty much because. Enough research suggests that you know, as the kid is growing up, those early years are most important. Second, I mean, when you look at the digital devices, mom wants to get rid of the kid. I mean, she's busy cooking, she wants to give an iPad, get, get the kid going, right? So that time, the consumption of the, the no informal uh, learning or, or generally uh, video programs or YouTube or anything is a lot more. But what we are also seeing is a shift in the classroom where, I mean, taking example of Lu what Lewis did in his previous, uh, I mean, is still doing actually at uh, Discovery. Uh, the teachers are using video as a mean to communicate to students. And the video is becoming supplementary education outside the classroom as well. So we are seeing a trend where YouTube or even mobile service providers, I mean, uh, we're talking to a few of them right now who are very interested in bite-sized content. They're interested in three to four minutes video because for them also churn is a big issue. And they want to solve that churn by giving supplementary material to, to K-12 to kids, I mean the parents, so that parents can pass it on to kids. So huge uh, space growing up uh, in formal supplementary education. Uh, and then as we mentioned, I mean as, as you heard from Vsauce, I mean that's informal alternate education which is more about uh, a, a generally wide topic is always interesting. I mean, Vsauce is one example, but there are many more channels coming up on YouTube which are monetizing well. Uh, so yeah, I mean, in I mean, if if you guys have any great ideas about animated series for pre-K, we are very interested uh, to to look at that. Uh, we are very interested in la uh, language learning using videos. Uh, we are very interested in looking at uh, multilingual content uh, which can be used in Asia, uh, and so on. You know. So that's a great positive opening uh, to uh, to draw to a close on. Uh, I just want to do a show of hands so that, so that my panellists know what to expect after this is over. So if you're primarily interested in, in the commissioning model and broadly interested in what Ian's doing and what Lisa is doing, could you raise your hand? Okay. 
thank you it's about a third quarter of the audience and if you're interested in discussing with Richard and Abby at some at some point in the future an investment in a business and growing a business could you raise a hand wow very interesting. Okay, so you're going to be busy, you guys. Okay, right. Can I, can I just make yeah. one, one last final point? Please. The, the, just, it, one of the things that dawns on me is one of our big challenges in terms of, in terms of learning going forward is that, um, as everyone I think appreciates here at this conference, like young, young people are the sort of our early adopters of all technologies. And the, the new, new platforms and sort of new approaches are, are arriving all the time. And the truth is, the ones where all the sort of the youngest generation are headed are sort of not seeking, like they, they, their business is doing well. And so they don't necessarily look to, to sort of attract additional content because they're doing, they're doing fine. And, and actually the, the platforms in which the sort of young people are beginning to sort of migrate away from, as in the next generation are migrating away from, suddenly trying to put in content to attract them back. And so the challenge for learning is trying to, in, in, the, in the old days we were leading, like television was leading the pack and sort of drive, you know, um, young kids were, were being attracted to a new platform and all this new content. And instead now they're able to sort of, they're going to places where, where we, it's difficult to access because the new, there's a sort of a wild west of people can just create any form of content and the places we are more easily able to get into, they're not there anymore, even by the time we yeah. sort of start getting into yeah. YouTube. Obviously it's popular, obviously it's very popular, but there are other platforms like Twitch and so on where lots of kids are headed now and they're not seeking our content. Yeah. The, the, the uh, empires generally rise and fade away and, and uh, it's difficult to imagine but uh, one day Facebook and uh, YouTube will be supplanted by uh, you, yeah, right, contact details. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yes, we've got that on the slide? No. No, right, so <laughs> sorry about that. Just how can we carry on this conversation? Okay, thank you for that. So how can we carry on this conversation? Um, how can we carry on the conversation, Lisa? Well, um, if you're interested in, in pitching, uh, particularly for bite-sized work, do keep an eye on the commissioning website. Uh, the URL was up there earlier, but it's quite easy to find. Um, if you have any other ideas or questions or anything, I'm happy for you to email me. I'm just lisa.percy at bbc.co.uk. Okay, and very quickly, thank you. Uh, I've got a great idea. Actually, approach Abby, because actually I try and find most of my ideas myself. When you approach me, I normally don't not, I'm normally less interested. Uh, right. <laughs> Abby, we find you, you at can, Sandbox. You, yeah, you can reach me at abby at sandboxandco.com or send an email to hello at sandboxandco.com, whatever And Ian? If you go to um, welcome.ac.uk forward slash broadcast or forward slash games, um, then all our contact details are there. So okay. Rather than me giving you my... Thank you. Thank you, everyone. So um, I'd like to thank my panellists. I'd like to thank our producer, Dominic Sant, who's worked very hard to put this together. I'd like to thank you for coming. Thank you.